Amen. Amen. Good stuff. All right, Revelation chapter 1. Let's strap in and get ready for this series through the book of Revelation. I want to begin tonight with the first five words of the first chapter. But then I want to touch on John, the author of this book, and I want to touch on the local churches that this book was to be disseminated to. But then I want to come back to the main theme of the book, the main character of chapter 1, who is Jesus Christ. You'll notice that the book of Revelation starts out with exactly what this book is about. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation, Greek word apocalypsis, simply means an unveiling or an uncovering. In other words, this God's last word to man in His Word, the Bible, is an accurate and exact representation of who Jesus Christ is. And this is why the book of Revelation is so important. Because more than anything else, this is a picture, an accurate picture, an accurate representation of Jesus Christ. This is why Satan spend so much time trying to even get Christians to avoid the book of Revelation. Many people are intimidated by the book of Revelation. Many people stay away from the book of Revelation. Because to them, the prophecies and all of the symbolism and all of that is too much. But we need to realize that at its very core, at its very center... What this book is about is one person, and that is Jesus Christ. He is on every page of this book. And if you and I do not walk away each time we're in the book of Revelation, and each time we study it, even on Tuesday night, if we do not walk away with a deeper sense of wonder and awe at who Jesus is, then we have missed the entire theme and focus of the book of Revelation. This book is not primarily about prophecy. This book is not primarily about the tribulation and the Antichrist. And there are many Christians that when they go into a study of Revelation, they come out of those studies knowing more about the Antichrist than they do about the Christ. That will not be true in this study. Because as we have said, we are approaching this study maybe a little bit different than any study you've ever had through the book of Revelation. This will not be a study primarily dealing with prophecy. We are going to stick to the main theme and the main character of the book throughout. And that is given to us in the first few words of the book. It is primarily the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is who He really is. And it is designed in such a way so that we then will give Him glory. See, glory is an active, an active acknowledgement of who He is. He, Jesus, is glorified when we allow Him to be seen as He really is. And I'll even 
go so far as to say this. If even a Christian has a picture or view or an opinion of Jesus Christ based on their study of the Word of God from Genesis through Jude, but do not have a picture of Jesus which the book of Revelation brings, then it is not a complete and accurate picture of who Jesus is. In order for us to have a balanced an accurate and clear picture of who Jesus is, we must study Him also in the book of Revelation as well. We must not neglect this book any longer. It is one of the reasons why, out of all the books of the Bible, this one is the only one that actually God says, you will receive a special blessing by reading, by hearing, and by observing the things that are in this book. Verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed is the one who hears. That word means to consider carefully. And blessed is the one who obeys, observes carefully the things written in it because the time is near. By the way, to encourage you, nowhere does God say that this blessing is attached to understanding it all. He doesn't say that. Okay? But the things that you and I can grasp and can understand, He expects us to respond to in a proper way. To acknowledge who He is. That's what glory is. That's what giving God glory is all about. And that's what this book's about. But let's first talk about the human author. The one that God chose to write this book. He is the Apostle John. He's mentioned... In verse 4, he even says this is from John. And then in verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and the one who shares with you in the persecution, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos, which by the way, that word means my killing, because of the word of God and the testimony about Jesus. I want to stop here for a moment. I hope this will be an encouragement to you. I'll take a brief amount of time with this because, again, I want to get to Jesus tonight. But John has something, I think, to encourage us with as well. At this point in John's life, he's probably close, if not past 90 years of age. All the other disciples... Those who walked with Jesus with John have long died as martyrs. He has outlasted them because he was, first of all, probably the youngest of the disciples of Jesus. And secondly, because he did not get martyred. The Roman Empire chose, instead of trying to make John some kind of hero by martyring him, they chose to exile him for years and years to this island thinking that if they just exiled him and got him out of the way, that maybe people would forget about him. And what we see here is that even though, maybe even for a time through all those years on Patmos, maybe even he felt alone, isolated, and abandoned, he never was. In fact, God had for him, even at this moment in his time of life, Maybe the most important assignment that he's had even up to this point, and that was being the receptor 
of this message through an angel from Jesus himself, this last great book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. This should encourage all of us that when when maybe others think we're done and we're finished, maybe even when we think we're done and we're finished, when you feel maybe at a point in your life that you are on an island, you're alone, you're abandoned, you're isolated, we never are. And God always has His hand upon us. And and, and sometimes our greatest ministry for the Lord can come out of sometimes our deepest darkest moments in life. Think about that when you think about John. That that maybe the greatest contribution John ever made to the church down through the history was this book, and it happened at the very end of his life when he was all alone on an island. All by himself. You see. Secondly, this message was to be given to local churches. And we're going to obviously talk more about that in in the coming weeks. But I just want to stop for a moment and just remind all of us about that this book, one of the other things that this reminds us of is the importance of the local church. The importance of the local church. And today why that's necessary is because even amongst Christians, there are Christians that say, you know, I don't need to be part of a local church. I don't need to be faithful to a church. I don't need to be plugged into a church. I don't need to serve within a church. And yet, throughout the Bible, and especially a book like Revelation, you get confronted with the fact that when Jesus, who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and at the end, the very last message he gives to mankind comes through local churches. Notice in verse 4, from John to the seven churches, those called out who regularly gathered together to worship him in the province of Asia. And then if you go over to verse 11, the angel tells John, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven local churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We see The glorified Jesus in verse 13, and we'll come back to this, in the midst of lampstands. And we learn in verse 20 that these lampstands at the very end of chapter 1 are the seven churches. In other words, Jesus is in the midst of these local churches. And the phrase in the midst speaks about his fixed position. He is always in the midst amongst His churches. He wants to build His church. He wants His church to reflect His glory. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 3.20 that God's glory should be in the church and through the church. If, If there was ever to be a place where we get a vision of who Jesus really is and we can reflect an accurate representation of who Jesus is to the world, it should be through the church. That's what Revelation's reminding us of. That's why Jesus is going to spend the next couple chapters dealing with the church. 
Because that's what he's always dealing with. That's where his heart is. That's where his focus is. And that's what makes me grieve as a pastor when I hear Christians say that they, they demean the importance of the church and, and, and say it's not important. The church isn't important. I don't need to be part of a local church. How can you reconcile that when that's very important to God? And yet, you're saying it's not important to you? When he gave his message, when he chose to want to give an exact and accurate representation of himself to mankind, he did it through the local church. In fact, John was even conscious of this. Because back up in verse 10, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day was Sunday. And he knew on that day these churches would be assembling together to worship the Lord. So we've seen a little bit about John. We've seen a little bit about who this message was eventually to get to. It was to get to these seven churches. And it was to be read allowed in these seven churches. They were to be encouraged to hear the word, verse 3, and then to observe carefully or obey the things that were written in it. But again, back up to verse 1. Primarily, this is all about Jesus Christ. It is from Jesus Christ and it is about Jesus Christ. It is literally a message from Jesus about Himself to His church so that they could have an accurate representation of Him so that as lampstands, they could accurately portray Him and represent who He really is to the world. So let's talk about Jesus. He should be our favorite subject. And he's certainly the subject of the book of Revelation and of chapter 1. Notice some of the things that we learn about Jesus in this. First of all, in verse 4, I think we are introduced to the fact that this is from John to the seven churches that are in the province of Asia. And then I think we, we see God the Father here in verse 4. He who is, who was, and who is still to come. I think we have a reference here to the Spirit of God, denoted by the seven spirits, the plentiful and powerful Spirit of God. But then you'll also notice the in verse 5 that more than anyone, that now Jesus Christ is going to get the majority of the attention and the majority of what is being said from here on out in chapter 1. And notice what it says about Jesus. And it pictures who he has been in the past and who he is and who he's been to us who know him. First of all, notice in verse 5. From Jesus Christ, first of all, the faithful witness. This means one worthy of trust and reliable. 
Out of all the witnesses to God and from God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God of very God, was obviously the best and greatest witness to man that man ever had. In fact, the author of Hebrews says that when God spoke and gave His last message to man, He spoke in His Son. There could be no greater, in a sense, revelation or message or messenger from God to man than Jesus, the faithful, reliable trustworthy witness. Second, he's also called the firstborn from among the dead. This word firstborn means the preeminent one from among the dead. And and may I interject this at this point. The reason he is the preeminent one from among the dead was because he was the very first person resurrected who would never die again. Were there, were, were there people in the Old Testament and even people that Jesus raised from the dead? Yes, but technically they weren't resurrected. They were reanimated. They were given physical life again. But one day they're going to have to die again. Jesus was the first one who was resurrected never to die again. That's why he's called the firstborn, the preeminent one from among the dead. Then he's also to, we're also told about Jesus, verse 5, that he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. The chief, the leader over the kings of the earth. Think about this in the time that John was writing this. When the Roman Empire and Caesar was, you know, ruling the world. And people thought, you know, the power was in Rome and, and whoever led the Roman Empire, they were it. John says, no. Do we remember who Jesus is? He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is over all the leaders of the world. There are no leaders on this earth that even get to where they are without His sovereign hand allowing it to happen. And the Bible tells us that He can turn the king's heart any way that He wants to. You see, He's sovereign. He's over the kings of the earth. And one day, the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. So John is again revealing, he's uncovering, he's unveiling for us who Jesus is so that we can have an accurate representation of Him. Then he goes on, verse 5. He is the one who loves us. In the Greek, this means continually and dearly loving us. In other words, He's always loved us. He's loving us now. He's never going to stop loving us. He's always loving us. That's who He is. And as part of that love, notice, He has set us free from our sins at the cost of His own blood. The word set us free means to loosen, to release. He's literally separated us from our sins. That's what He wants to do. He not only wants to deal with the penalty of our sins and to separate us from the penalty of our sins, He wants to deliver us from the power that sin has in our life. That's that whole process that He wants to take us through throughout our Christian life. He wants to break the power of sin. He wants to break the addictions and the bondage and the habits and all of that through His power. This is who He is. And then He goes on to say in verse 6, He's appointed us as a kingdom and as priests 
serving his God and Father. That's who we are because of him. We are a kingdom, folks. That's our standing. We are, we are to be rulers because when, when Jesus Christ looks at his people, he sees us as, as princes and princesses. As those who will one day, in a sense, rule with him in his kingdom. He made us this. Is this the way we carry ourselves? Is this who, how we see him? Priest simply means that we are involved and devoted and consecrated to his service. That's where our attention is. Not on ourselves, not on this world, but our attention is on serving the Lord. That's the concept of being a priest. Then in verse 7, he says, look, this is a term of divine intervention. Behold, see, he is going to return one day with the clouds. Paul talks about this. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will forever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort or encourage one another with these words. He's coming back, my friends. This Jesus. And notice, John says, every eye will see him. This will be a universal return even those who pierced him and all the tribes on earth at this point will mourn because of him this is certainly going to come to pass amen a word that means this is firm this is faithful this is sure it's gonna happen then in verse 8 here's who jesus is He's the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha, first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega, last letter in the Greek alphabet. It simply means he was here at the first. He'll be here till the end. He's here through everything in between. There's nothing outside of Jesus. He's what is at the beginning of everything, and it's because of him that anything had a beginning, and he will be here right to the very end. And then John says, he is the Lord God. Those words mean he is the sovereign master of the universe. He decides. (laughs) This is Jesus. This is an exact representation of Jesus. And this is why revelation is so important because even as Christians, many times if if you and I were to talk and we were to say, you know, what, what kind of picture do you get in your mind when you think of Jesus? Most people will go back to the Jesus of the Gospels. Even Christians fail to see the glorified Christ. We always see Him in His humanity. We always see Him in His condescension and in His humility. And the book of Revelation is saying to us, hey, it's okay when you're going through the Gospels and whatever to be reminded of all that. But that's not who He is now. Even Paul said... You know, I I knew of, of Jesus in the flesh, but I don't know him that way anymore. 
Paul said, when I think of Jesus, this is the Jesus I think of. This is the Jesus that I focus on. This is the one who comes to mind now. This Jesus. The one who is, the one who was, and the one who is still to come. Then John writes, he is the all-powerful. The Greek word is pantocrator. It is used ten times in the New Testament. Nine of those ten times it's used in the book of Revelation. It means the one who rules over all. The one who holds all things. And this is who Jesus is. The all-powerful God. Verse 12. So John's in the Spirit on the Lord's day and he hears this voice. And he turns to see who was speaking to him. And when he did so, he saw these seven golden lampstands or candlesticks. And in the midst of these lampstands was one like a son of man. Jesus is the son of man. But I want you to see that that's not a term like many people think of, again, his humanity and his humiliation and condescension. It is a term that describes the Messiah. And to show you that, keep your finger in Revelation just for a moment and go back to the book of Daniel where this term is first used in the Bible. To Daniel chapter 7. I want you to see that this term, Son of Man is a term that should conjure up a different, again, picture of who Jesus is compared to one that we might think of when we think of the term Son of Man. In Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, here is the reference to the Messiah being the Son of Man. He's not only the Alpha and the Omega. He's not only the Lord God. He's not only the All-Powerful. He is the Messiah. And notice how he is described in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and with the clouds of the sky, one like a son of man was approaching. He went up to the Ancient of Days. I believe that's a term for God the Father. And was escorted before him. And notice what the Son of Man was given. He was given ruling authority. He was given honor. He was given sovereignty. Folks, this isn't things that were added to him. These were things that were acknowledged of him. See, to give God and to give Jesus glory doesn't add anything to him. It acknowledges who he already is. We go on. All peoples... Nations and language groups were serving Him. His authority is eternal and will not pass away. His kingdom will not be destroyed. This is the Son of Man, you see. So when John, back to Revelation 1, says, I saw one who corresponded to the Son of Man, The Jews especially, who knew Daniel 7, knew exactly what he was talking about. 
He wasn't talking about the humble one who came and was born as a baby in Bethlehem. He was talking about the one that Daniel talked about in Daniel chapter 7. And notice this vision. And I really don't feel in all the time I've studied and read this that I can add very much to this. So I'm not even going to try. But I want you to see that what John begins to describe in seeing the vision of Jesus is just describing him in, in his majesty, in his magnificence, in, in his deity, in his authority, in his power. And, and it's just beyond awesome who Jesus is. And folks, I will say this before I begin to read this portion of Scripture. If we ever needed a vision of who Jesus really is, we need Him today and we need Him in the church. We need to see this Jesus. Notice, He was dressed in a robe extending down to His feet. Verse 13 of Revelation 1. And he wore a wide golden belt around his chest. His head and hair were as white as wool. It speaks of his timelessness. Even as white as snow. His eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters, crashing waves of the sea. He held seven stars in his right hand and a sharp double-edged sword extended out of his mouth. This speaks of the power and authority of his word. By the way, there are two different kinds of words in the Greek for, for sword. There's a little tactical sword that's used, which is what is used in the book of Hebrews when it talks about the Word of God is like a sword. But here, this speaks of a great sword. In fact, in our minds, what we would think of more is almost like a javelin type instrument. Notice this. His face shone like the sun, shining at full strength. That's bright. That's Jesus, folks. This is who Jesus is. And John says, when I began to see who Jesus was, and remember, this is the one that during His earthly time on earth, He did lean His head on the chest of this Jesus. But he understands that this Jesus that he's seeing and hearing now is the glorified Messiah, the all-powerful, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the eternal Lord God of the universe. And so the Bible says even when John saw him, what was his response? I fell down. I fell down at his feet as though I were dead. Worship. See, this, this is why 
the book of Revelation is a book of worship. Because what it is saying to us is, if even as Christians, if we truly got a glimpse, if we truly got an accurate representation, a vision of who Jesus really is, it would stir within us worship. If we really believe that this is who we say we know and serve and love, who is our Savior, then our response would probably be the same as John's. Lord, what do you want me to do? There would be less complaining and arguing with Jesus and more just, oh my goodness, Jesus, whatever. You see, I, I don't think a Christian can be any more alive than when we are fallen as if we're dead at the feet of Jesus. I think that's actually when we're most alive. Because we have captured who Jesus is at that moment. That's why, for just a moment, if you go back, I want to point this out. That's why, even in the midst of all these revelations of Jesus, these uncoverings and unveilings of who He is. Notice again what John reminds us of back in verse 6. After he says He appointed us as a kingdom and priest serving as God and Father, notice what he says, To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The glory. The active acknowledgement of who He is. That's what glory is. Remember Paul said to the Corinthians that everything we do as Christians should be to what? The glory of God. Even eating and drinking. Everything that we do should be to the glory of God. In other words, there should be an acknowledgement, a recognition of who He is in everything that we do. But how can I acknowledge and recognize Him in everything I do if I don't have an accurate representation of who He is. That's why revelation is so important. And that's why we should neglect it no longer. Let me ask you tonight. Do you like it when you're misrepresented? Does it feel good when... People misrepresent who you are to others. That doesn't feel good, does it? None of us like to be misrepresented. We always like to be presented by others to others in an accurate light of who we at least think we are. And that's as fallen human beings. Think about it from Jesus' standpoint. The Lord God, the all-powerful... The Alpha and the Omega. How many times is He misrepresented for who He really is? But I love this. The Alpha and the Omega. The Lord God. The All-Powerful. The Messiah. When He saw Him, Notice what he does to John in verse 17. He placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. Let's get that tonight, my friends. 
Because that's a message we all need to hear and we need to carry to others. Do not fear. If we truly had an accurate picture of who Jesus was at all times in our minds, hearts, and lives, then we wouldn't be afraid. See the connection here? Jesus is saying, look, you, you've seen me. The only time, John, you ever saw even a glimpse of me like this was on the Mount of Transfiguration. For most of my earthly life, you never saw me as this. But after my resurrection, when God exalted me, and where I assumed the place that I had ever since the beginning as the Alpha and the Omega of the universe, now you are seeing who I really am in all of my glory. And there's no reason now for you to be afraid. We can only imagine what goes through the mind of Jesus when he sees those who know him, who live in fear. And all we would have to do is, is recapture who he is in our lives. Because if we really believed that this is the one who saved us, that this is the one who continually loves us, that this is the one who set us free from our sins and has made us a kingdom of priests and, and, a, and a kingdom, why would we ever be afraid of anything? No wonder Paul could say to the Romans, if this God is for us, who can be against us? When we begin to let fear creep into our lives, it is because we have lost the vision and the representation and the accuracy of who Jesus is. He is no longer in a relevant, active, ongoing way the all-powerful Alpha and Omega Lord God, Messiah of the universe. We have now somehow brought Him down to somewhere else. And fear begins to creep in. We live in a world of fear. And we're going to continue to live in a world of fear. Security and safety will be now, until Jesus comes, the number one focus of everybody on planet Earth. It will be the one thing more than anything else, that drives decisions and everything that is done. And you and I as Christians, who are supposed to be part of, of local churches that are lampstands to give an exact representation of Jesus, we must realize that our responsibility is not to live in fear no matter what is going on on planet Earth. Or else then we cease to give the world around us an accurate representation of who He is. Either we believe that He is this or we don't. Either it makes a difference in our lives or it doesn't. By the way, close in just a couple of minutes. 
transitioning a little bit to next week, notice something very important. The church is represented as a lampstand, a candlestick. Let's remember what that means. That means that the lampstand or candlestick doesn't produce the light. It just displays the light. The idea of a candlestick or a lampstand is that God wants to place His people, His local churches, in in prominence so that the light of Him can be shed out. But if we're not faithful, He tells us He'll come and take the candlestick away. In other words, He'll take that place of prominence away doesn't take our salvation away, but takes that place, that opportunity to witness away. Because folks, in the Old Testament, as priests ministered in the temple and the tabernacle, they had a job that they had to do every day along with all other kinds of duties. And one of those is they would go into each of the candlesticks or or the lampstands and they would do three things. They would make sure that they were filled with oil because the light of these candlesticks weren't produced from the candlestick itself. It was produced from the oil that was pumped through the candlestick or the lampstand. And the oil in the Bible represents the Holy Spirit. Secondly, they would trim the wick. Third, they would clean the soot. This is how Jesus ministers to his church today, and we're going to see that in the next couple of weeks in his message to these churches that he's in the midst of at all times. It simply reminds us that God wants us to be a lampstand as a church. But in order to do that, that means we need to accurately represent who He is. But we can't accurately represent who He is if we don't have an accurate representation of who He is. Which is, again, why this study is so important. So Jesus said, Do not be afraid, verse 17. I am the first and the last. I was present at first. I'll be here till the very end. I am the one who lives. The word lives means to be strong, active, powerful. I was physically dead. I did experience physical death. But look, I am very much and fully alive forever and ever. And Jesus says to John, I hold. The word hold means to have permanent possession of. Jesus never gives up possession of these keys. I hold the keys of death and Hades. In other words, Jesus is saying to John, I am the one who has authority over the afterlife. I do. I have authority over the afterlife. Where people go. Where they will spend eternity. I'm the one that has those keys. I have the power and authority over that. And it's based on whether they have a relationship with me or not. Therefore, Jesus says to John, write what you saw. Write, verse 19, what is, and write what will be after these things. Can I share with you that verse 19 of chapter 1 really presents a nice little outline of the entire book. Because 
In verse 19, when Jesus says, write what you saw, that's chapter 1. That's what we're studying tonight. When Jesus says to John, then write what is, that's chapters 2 and 3. What we're going to study the next couple of weeks. And then, write what will be after these things, that's the rest of the book. Chapter 4 through chapter 22. Verse 19 of chapter 1 basically gives you the outline, if you will, from Jesus himself about the rest of the book. And then Jesus shares with John the interpretation, if you will, of these symbols. Which again, when even Christians come to the book of Revelation, one of the reasons they avoid it is because it's got symbols in it. Yeah. But 90% of the symbols that are used in the book of Revelation, we're told if you keep reading, usually what those symbols are. So they should not intimidate. It's not an allegory. It's real. And Jesus is giving us exactly what those symbols represent. Verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now remember, the word angel just simply means messenger. In this context, I believe that he's talking about the spiritual leaders who have responsibility over these seven churches. And then, Jesus says, and the seven churches, or the seven lampstands, they're the seven churches. And again, I direct your attention back up to verse 13. Where's Jesus? In the midst of the lampstand. That's where he's at. He's in the midst of his churches. That's where he's at. You want to know what Jesus is doing? You want to be a part of what Jesus is doing? Then we need to be part of his church. That's what he's building. He didn't say, I'm building this. or I'm. He said, I will build my church. Reflected in local churches. Churches that he gave the message of who he is. So that these churches and us as churches could have an accurate, exact representation of who he is. So that then we could reflect that to the world as his lampstands. You see. So I hope tonight, for all of us, as we begin this wonderful study of the revelation of Jesus Christ, that we could walk away tonight having looked at a few verses in chapter 1 with maybe looking at Jesus a little bit differently. Or maybe walking away away with just a little bit more awe and wonder of who Jesus is. And if nothing else, translating it even very practically and specifically to our lives tonight by reminding ourselves that this Jesus, if we truly believe that this is who Jesus is, and we're observing carefully and listening carefully to what He's saying to us through this message, then He's saying to us the same thing He said to John. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the Lord God. I am the all-powerful. I am the Messiah. I am the one that you caught a vision of in verses 13 through 18. 
That's me. That's me. That's who you will see one day. That's who I will see one day when we enter into glory. It won't be the Jesus who came to die on the cross. It will be this Jesus that we see in glory. And it is this Jesus who is at the right hand of God the Father now ruling and sustaining the universe. And He's telling all of us, know me, so that you can give an exact representation to others of who I really am. And don't fear. Don't be afraid. Let's pray. God, thank you for this portrait, this picture of Jesus. We need more than ever to know who Jesus is. And when we think of Jesus, and when we pray to Jesus, and when, Lord, we're going through life, help us to remember the Jesus of Revelation. Help us to know who You are. Because, Lord, it's truly in knowing who You really are that can enable us, Lord, to tackle anything that life will bring. It will remind us that we're never alone, abandoned, or isolated. That we're never in a corner when it comes to You. Lord, if we just remind ourselves of who You really are, Lord, there's no way fear could ever get a hold of us. And yet, God, we know that we have a challenge before us as Your people. Because we know that we are living and will continue to live in a world that is gripped by fear. Their number one thing is safety and security. And they don't know where to find it. They don't know how to have it in their life. Because they've yet to meet You, the Lord of glory the ark of safety, the only one that real security can be found in. So God, I pray tonight, more than ever, that Your church will see who You really are. And we will live accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.